0: there rock and rollers welcome to episode number fifty three of the ugly american werewolf in London rock podcast recorded here in central London just off historic Abbey Road. And speaking of Abbey Road, I want to thank everybody who tuned into our last episode, UA Will number 52 on my visit to historic Abbey Road Studios is a really special day where I got to go in and sit where the Beatles and Pink Floyd and so many other extraordinary artists have recorded over the years, get a lecture and get a little history lesson of everything that's gone on over there. And we really appreciate you tuning in for that one. It went over very well. I think watching Get Back on Disney Plus about the Beatles in 1969, which a lot of people did looking at Twitter, a lot of people have been watching that. Of course, Jackson and I soaked it up I don't know if we're going to be able to do a show on that or not. There's so much material to go over there, but it was amazing. It was a lot of fun, great music, and interesting moments in the dynamic between the four of them, not to mention all the other folks in their orbit at that time. Must-see TV. If you've got a chance, you've got to see that here soon. This week, we go into the vaults for an album that's just celebrating its 30th anniversary, and that's ak Baby by U2, released in November of 1991. It came out just a few months after Jackson and I had met as freshmen at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. And it came at an interesting time where, yes, Nirvana and grunge was hitting, but at the same time, a lot of classic rock and arena and stadium rock bands who maybe had been away for a little while were coming back with huge albums of their own, namely U2 and Guns N' Roses and Metallica and Def Leppard and Kiss and Rush and Dire Straits Tom Petty, all these people were coming back. So although 1991 is remembered as the time of grunge coming to the forefront, it was really still an amazing time for legacy acts from the 80s that were ready to come in and plant their flag in the 90s as well. And while we were in college, Octung Baby could not have been bigger. The big hits like Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses, Mysterious Ways, One was enormous, even better than the real thing. The Fly, all these songs were huge, were big all over MTV. And in listening to it, Jackson and I were able to kind of go back in time and really relive some of those moments when we were young. I wouldn't say idealistic, but young and had the world in front of us living through some extraordinary times in our lives. And this was just one of the big soundtracks to it. So we're reviewing Octung Baby as it turns 30, realizing that it's been 30 years since we became friends and and first met there back in the day in Florida. A little bit of business. Of course, you can hear all past episodes at www.UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Ugly and at ActionJack72. Please make sure you download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and know that we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. All we want to talk about is rock and roll, classic rock, hard rock, heavy metal, progressive rock, early MTVs, stuff that turned us on when we were kids, stuff that turned us on when we were younger, stuff that we've come to appreciate as we've gotten older, and we've got hundreds of shows in us. So right now, let's go ahead and get into show number 53, all about Octoon Baby, here on The Wolf. So I was just editing the REM document broadcast uh, that we did. Really, it seems to me, the story of that album for all three of us is that it takes us back to a certain place in time in our lives, kind of when we were entering high school. Or, you know, for Tom, it was, he was a couple of years older, but he was going to a brand new school. So that's kind of like entering high school also. And just, you know, when you're talking about first, you know, you're listening to it with like a first girlfriend, and you're listening to it in your car, and like the first car you have and stuff like that, and kind of memories that come back for you. And that's kind of what ak Baby is, I think for us as well and for a lot of people our age because it came out I mean right around now is the 30th anniversary of its release so it would have been getting into that second trimester, end of fall semester in freshman year of college. And it was ubiquitous. It was in the air, it was everywhere. And it was such a change for you two versus where they had immediately come from in doing some bluesy stuff with BB King, you know, on the last record. And although they'd experimented some, they were basically kind of a stripped-down rock and roll band edged experimented with some effects. But then this thing Opens it wide up. They're experimenting with all sorts of what I would have called disco, kind of club, industrial stuff, different kind of drum stuff. Obviously, Edge is this crazy wizard of a mastermind with all the different effects that he can get out of his guitars. But this Octung Baby comes in kind of right when we needed something like it, I feel like, man. I mean, everyone points to 91 as, oh, that's when Nirvana happened and Pearl Jam happened, and then everything was different. I'm like, well, it, it was. But also in 91, some major classic rock, amazing rock and roll band moments like YouTube's Octung Baby came out, and Metallica's Black Album, and the Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion albums. And Rush who we love came out with Roll the Bones. So there was it was the dichotomy, right? It was like either you were in this kind of older camp or you were in the new camp and here's you two kind of teetering between the two. Not that it was grunge, but it was new, especially from what you expected from you two.
2: I agree. I think that they, they definitely reinvented themselves. With this record, what I didn't realize going back and doing research for this deal is that they did, they had the Joshua tree, right? That Mm -hmm. was their, what launched them. Yeah. What launched them into being a superstar group. And then what are you going to do next? i've got an idea we'll do a little we'll do a one-off kind of deal it was almost like guns and roses lies album mm-hmm. it was kind it was part new it was part live with older stuff they yeah like you said they had the tribute to the blues they had that song desire which i thought was i mean that was all over the place when i was in high school right but apparently it was while it did well in sales it did not do well with critics and so I think going into this record, they kind of had their tail tucked between their legs just a little bit. They didn't know what they were doing. So yeah, they came out with this thing that was totally different. It didn't fit in with the rest of the stuff. It didn't even fit in with U2. If you, I, I can imagine if you were a hardcore U2 fan back then, you said, what is this thing? I don't know it. I don't like it. But for us, yeah, it was fantastic. It, 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 it hit right at the right time. I was ready to hear this. Mm-hmm. and yeah it, it was it was everywhere when it came out and i was looking at the tracks on here the singles
1: sure five of them I have
2: that? yeah they had five singles but at least in a way that made this thing on the charts for almost an entire year like it right. never left it's like as soon as one song started to lose momentum they came out with another one. And so it was, and, and I know we talked about this on the Black Album record. It was it, it, like, it never stopped. It just kept, it just, there was, here's another one, another one, another one. So it was always present for like almost an entire year in that 91, 92 time span.
0: Absolutely. And it was a record that you can play the whole thing. You don't really need to skip anything even if you're like, okay, well maybe we need a mood change. Well, it's almost like they've got it built in. It's almost like they've anticipated that and they've sequenced it exactly the right way. And this is really the first U2 record that I kind of experienced on CD. Everything else was two-sided, a tape or an album. But this was the first one where we had the CD. Did you own this CD? Did you have a copy of this?
2: Uh, I believe, yeah, no. no, not not originally. I think I had a bootleg or something. But uh, I definitely had a copy of it. I can't swear that it was on CD.
0: Okay, because this was one that I did not own. I did not pick up while we lived together because mm. everyone else had one. you know it was say, you could borrow it from everybody or you could just walk down the hall and go listen to them. Yeah, you didn't have to. We would go out and buy our cult records because not everybody had those. but yeah. this was just in the air and obviously it was all over MTV. And so it was one that I never purchased because I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't need to. And I think they sold 18 million or something crazy like that. So they didn't need me to. I got to it eventually, though. We'll get into that in a bit. But to go into a little bit about what you were talking about, yes, the Unforgettable Fire kind of set them up. I think that was 84. And then they took a good long while to make the Joshua Tree. And then the Joshua Tree rocketed them into superstardom. We have a, a show on that. What is that, number 16 or something like that? Uh, or 18. That definitely set them up. And, and then they came right back. Rattle and Hum was right on its heels. And look, it was a film, right? It was a movie that kind of showed them on the tour for Joshua Tree. And, and it showed them struggling with stuff. And that's what I think a lot of people, they came off looking like jerks, right? Because they're kind of this earnest fighting for freedom, fighting for human rights band. And then you see them, and behind the scenes, they're still kind of punk-ass, pampered rock stars. Like, oh, it's so hard covering this stage every night. It's so big. Uh, I don't know if I can do it. Like, whatever. You're getting paid a lot. Plus, the thing with B.B. King kind of came off as... I think they wanted to show us that we're pilgrims learning about the blues, but I think it came off as them saying, hey, stupid Americans, we're going to teach you about the blues. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We know about the blues. Pasty face. Yeah. You know?
2: and, and and also, you know, now you think you're at the same level with B.B. King. You're just as good or better the next wave. and I, I mean, I, I, was a, I was a kid, and I, I, when it came out, I never took it that way. Right. I always thought it was they were paying homage to it. And let's face it. If you're, it doesn't matter where you're from on the face of the earth, if you play rock and roll music, you were, especially at that time, like 70s, 80s, into the 90s, you were influenced by blues, rock, the the BB Kings, of all course. of those guys that came, that came before you. So I never took it like that, but apparently, I don't know, I just think that. In, in that 88, 89 time, people were ready to hate you, especially critics, were ready to hate you, too, because they had gotten so big. And and you're right, they, they've had the human rights stuff that they were advocating for. You know, Bono had the Rainforest Deal. Mm-hmm. Oh, so now you're, you know, what are you, better than me? Right. And so I think that, yeah, I, I think that they, they definitely faced a backlash with all of that stuff.
0: And I think they got burned out, too. I mean, they made this huge album, which took a long time to make, It was incredibly successful, the big tours, big videos, then right on its heels, you come out with another album, and I feel like it was a double album, because it's kind of like the soundtrack to the movie, which included some of their hits live, and then some new stuff, I don't it was at least a double record, maybe, I don't know if it was a double, it may have just been the one CD. But it sold incredibly well. It was like 14 million copies of that. Yeah. But, and then they toured on that, right? So I think it eventually, by like 89 or so, they're getting a little burnt out. They've been doing a lot of work. Huge success. But also kind of like, all right, we need to go kind of find and redefine ourselves, right? We, we need to get off the hamster wheel for a little while and just figure out what all this is really supposed to be about.
2: Right. And I think here is where they kind of, I don't want to say lost their way, but they weren't on the same page when they got to, I guess, Berlin. They thought they would go and experience this giant page of history with the reunification of Berlin and the Berlin Wall falling down. And I guess they got there and said, oh, this is not as this is not this huge party I thought it was going to be. People were depressed and they don't know what's going on here. They don't, they don't, I mean, it's been 40 something years of communism. It's not, you're not going to just change it the next day. right? And I think that, that at this point in time, Clayton and Mullen were more, Straight ahead rock and roll. They wanted to do more '70s stuff, and the Edge and Bono said, "Well, you know this this industrial sound. That's what we're going for." So I think right off the bat they were not on the same page as far as what was going to happen with the music, and that led to some interesting recording times.
0: Exactly. Yeah. No. And they didn't want to be in America. It's like, oh, we need to be in a country that's older than two hundred years. You know, be where someplace where everything just kind of works and everything's clean and <laughs> new. Let's go. Let's go make it hard on ourselves, right? So they go to a place that's totally backwards it doesn't have this up well of spirit that they thought it would yeah like you said it's still run down not well appointed from communism it's bleak there's still a huge wall everywhere even though there's a hole in it now there's still this enormous wall there's still people living very very different lives and the hansa studio where they recorded it allegedly was kind of run down and daniel lanois had to bring in a bunch of equipment because it wasn't all that well-appointed anymore. And then, yeah, like you say, the rhythm section, Larry and Adam are kind of ready to kind of get on with what is U2, what it's always been, you know, since they were kids in Ireland. And Bono and Edge are trying to bring in some newer influences, hearing that Nine Inch Nails sound and thinking, some of that we can bring in. Which has got to be hard on, especially Larry, but the rhythm section, because if you 2 it all the beats electronically... Well, then, one of the humans who used to make those beats and make those rhythms—what do they do? And traditionally, because it's always been the songs were written by you two—it's a big reason why they haven't broken up to this day. It's because it's not just music by the edge, lyrics by Bono. They've always shared the credit, and I assume the royalties. And now those two were kind of being encouraged to write on their own, either together or off on their own, and they don't necessarily need to be in the room, all four of them doing it. But then when the four of them got together, there was tension. It's like, no, that's not what I want to do, all right? There was a story about Adam Clayton just handing the bass to Bono. You show me what you want me to play, or you do it yourself. I don't care either way. It's like, ooh... You can see some of that at the end of the Beatles tenure when George is like, just tell me what you want me to play and I'll play it or I won't play at all. Whatever would please you, then I'll do it. And then you're like, yeah, you can feel that tension, can't you? And and they did break up after that. So the stuff that they were going through was real. They're thinking, all right, we can't do this as a band anymore, maybe. Maybe we do need to break up.
2: Yeah, maybe we're not on the same page anymore. Maybe we want different things. And they're very famous at this point in time, but there are people who are more famous in the band. So I don't know if maybe Jealousy has something to do with it or you know what, what the record company is also pushing them to do. I don't know. But yeah, it, very, very cantankerous time. And I think going back to the studio, I think at one point in time it had been like a Nazi <laughs> ballroom or something like that. So Not like sure. it just that just kind of added to it. like, this is creepy. This isn't what we wanted. We don't like this. And I think that the output that they had in the studio in Berlin was not very productive. And they got upset and everything just kind of snowballed. But then I was reading they broke for Christmas Mm -hmm. and they went back to Ireland and they started listening to this stuff. And they're like, well, now, wait a minute. This isn't as bad as we thought, or there's more things there than we thought there were at the beginning. So maybe we do have the the genesis for something. And I think the other thing is, too, they wrote a lot of their music in the past, just kind of going into the studio and just starting to jam. Right. Like, it wasn't like, oh, we came in with an idea. You kind of just, okay, meh. And so that leads to everybody writing it because we didn't have anything when we came in. And we had, you know, some, somebody started with something and then we added to it, we came up with a song. So I think that while they while they did have a time where they were not super excited with each other, I think that going apart, they started to build on it to put something cohesive together.
0: Well, and it's got to be a little, I mean, although it seems to have worked a few times for them, they've got two producers, right? They've got Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, and then they've got an engineer as well. And Steve Lillywhite, who's worked with them on different things, kind of helped produce some of it as well. So usually there's only one captain of the ship or director of a film, but the way it kind of worked was Lanois was always there, and then Eno would come in once every few weeks or so see what they've been working on so he could hear it with a fresh ear and then point them in the right direction or strip out stuff that maybe was unnecessary. And, yeah, you mentioned they took a break and they came back and visited. That was Eno saying, look, listen, this stuff is not as bad as you think it was. And he did have to strip some of it out, but still he's like, look, there's some good bones here. And really it was the finding and writing of the song, one, out of mysterious ways that really changed the whole tone of everything for the band, and really for their future going forward, it's kind of an amazing story how they came to one, and how once that happened, everything was different.
2: Yes, and apparently the mysterious way sessions almost ended with fist to cuffs mm-hmm. between uh, between Bono uh, and the producer, and yet yeah, it, it is interesting to think about the fact that, yeah, from that, they said, okay, let's put something together. Let's I think I hear something different. And then to have a song like One, which is not anything like Mysterious Ways, come out of that. And then, then that was the basically the reset. They said, okay, we got this. We can work together. We're still a band. Let's move forward. And then kind of work it backwards from there.
0: It's amazing. There's a great documentary that came out 10 years ago, I guess for the 20th anniversary of Octone Baby, it's called From the Sky Down. It's basically a documentary uh, by Davis Guggenheim of the band. And they go back and they revisit the old studio and they talk through what was happening. And they kind of mention all the stuff that we've already talked about here. And then Edge is sitting there and he's got the DAT, the digital audio tape, which we thought was going to become big in our lives, and it didn't. It was big for recording artists, but it never really got to the consumer the way that they they thought it would. But it's like, this at the time was the height of, you would keep these around and you would let it run during your rehearsals and see what happened. So we're jamming on Mysterious Ways and there's a bridge and and he plays the bridge part where he's letting the tape play it. Plays the first bridge part was like one thing he goes there was a second bridge and as soon as he goes in a second bridge it's obviously the chords to one. Not that complicated but obviously but it catches everybody's ear like everybody kind of perks up and you can hear Bono saying get me an acoustic guitar at the speed of light and then they they worked out one and that gave them faith that yes we still can do this because they they did that while jamming together right there might have been pieces yes Edge already had pieces of mysterious ways and that was going to become a song but out of this kind of playing together they figured something else out and figured out a song that was huge for them absolutely massive massive had three or four different videos for it jackson
2: yeah and it doesn't sound like the rest of the stuff on the record but it is a nice change of pace and yeah it was once that hit i think that was what was that like the third single i, I think that was the third the single yeah yeah it was already doing well and then once that came out it was unbelievable that never ever left the airwaves once it came on
0: and didn't didn't somebody play it at your wedding
2: yes i think my brother played it at the wedding with a couple of other people that was a little later on and (laughs) i may have been uh slightly or mostly intoxicated at that point in time yeah
0: no you had an open bar so i guarantee you i was But I remember, yes, I remember your brother getting up there to sing it. And I'm like, oh, all right, now this is what I'm talking about. People get a little, now look, your your brother is a professional musician and producer. And if if anyone was going to sing at your wedding from the crowd, I think I would put him at number one.
2: Yes, uh, I was thankful that other people who maybe thought about doing that didn't because that wouldn't have gone as well. (laughs) Even though by that point in time with the open bar, you think, you know what, I got this. I can sing this song. No, just calm down. You go sit back down again, and we'll let other people take this. End
0: of the World, I guess, was released as a single. Maybe not everywhere, uh, but uh, but The Fly was the first one released technically, and it didn't hit that big in the U.S., but then the rest of them came out and, and did pretty well. Until the End of the World was the one that maybe didn't go as far. It was kind of later in 92. Mm. Even though it's a great song, fits in perfectly on the album, there may have been a little U2 or "Octung Baby fatigue at that point because we're talking about, yes, it's been on a year, and yes, the tour's been going on a long time. It's like, okay, you're great, you're back, we get it. But overall, in our life, in something that goes across, because, you know, yes, there's the kid next door who got immediately in Nirvana, Whereas we're like, yeah, that's not really for me. And then there's the girls who like pop music who lived upstairs. It's like all of us all listened to this record, start to finish. And that's what made it such a big soundtrack to freshman, sophomore year.
2: Do you remember that show that they played? You didn't go to that show, did you? The very first show on this tour? No, no.
0: I I worked security at in Tampa at the Bing Sombrero as a like okay. fraternity fundraiser. I can talk about that later. But no, yeah, you're, okay. there was like a almost like a ghost show, like a warm up show down where Ace got shocked back in the seventies, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yeah, that was a big the the entire tour started in Lakeland, Florida. Lakeland, yeah. Okay. So we had some people that were huge YouTube fans and I think the tickets were really hard to get or something like that. But I just remember thinking to myself, something doesn't sound right about this. Something is off a tick. You're starting this giant world tour in Lakeland, Florida. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So the people went, they drove for like two hours or whatever it was to get to the middle of nowhere to see this thing. They came back and the, the record had only been out for maybe a week, okay. or two weeks. They came back and were just fit to be tied because all they did was play this record start to finish ah. and said goodnight. There was no With or Without You. There was no Where the Streets Have No Name. There was no Sunday Bloody Sunday. It was just this record. And looking back on it, it, that would have been fantastic. But like I said, having only been out for a week, The Fly was out and that was it. You hadn't heard any of the rest of this. It was basically a listening party that you drove now four hours to get there and back. And that was it. And I said, yeah, you probably should have known something was up when they started out. They put their toe back in the water somewhere not very popular.
0: Yeah, so that's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, John Paul Jones will talk about, like, what was it like the first time he played Stairway to Heaven? It was like, nobody knew what it was. They're like, hey, play a whole lot of love, you know, play Moby Dick. They didn't know what it was. So, yeah, I mean, going back now, like, you were the first one ever. You'd be, like, very prideful. Oh, yeah, it was great. But back then, it's like, I don't even know these songs. Correct. But the other thing is, Lakeland, yeah, I'm pretty sure Lakeland is where Ace Fraley got shot, got electrocuted, knocked out, and the fans went, Ace, 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 and he put some booze in him and got himself back on stage to do the show, and it's where the idea came from for Shock Me. So, Lakeland, the Lakeland Civic Center is world famous Infamous. for that, yeah.
2: yes, exactly. And the best the best story was, you know, they said to Ace, you want to go to the hospital? Nah, I'm good. Mm-hmm. All right. Go for it.
0: Well, speaking of go for it, let's uh, let's walk through these a little bit because there's a lot to get to, and of course, in YouTube fashion, there are a lot of B sides, s- remixes, stuff that wasn't included on the original. Because I I think because I saw that documentary, the the from the sky down, it spurred me to go ahead and like you know what, all right, I'll go ahead and get this on CD. And oh, there's a 20th anniversary edition that has a bonus disc full of stuff. You know me, I'm a sucker for a good bonus disc, <laughs> sucker for B-sides, and remixes. So so I, I picked that up, and it's it's been in my Amazon account ever since. But yeah, you start with Zoo Station, and it's got all this electronica in it. It's not very U2 to start off with. Although it's good, it's a cool way to open the show, or open the record, I should say. It's still, it was a little off-putting at first. Now it sounds perfectly right. But I seem to remember listening to this the first few times with you, being like, that's an interesting way to start it.
2: And I think that was on purpose. They wanted to tell you, this is not, if you were expecting what you had before, no. I, I like the fact that it's it's industrial at the beginning, but then it kind of metal, mellows out. It's not like, they, they had referenced Nine Inch Nails, you know, as kind of being a an influence or something that they were interested in going along with. It's not like that. It's not like that constant assault of a nine inch nail song. So they kind of have the intro that lets you know something different is going on, but then it turns into more of a, a kind of a straight ahead rock song. There was a deal about how apparently when the Berlin was bombed back in the war, mm-hmm. animals had gotten out of the zoo, balls okay. fell down and they were just wandering around the streets of Berlin these exotic animals so kind of a crazy kind of a crazy time we, in the united states we don't we didn't really experience world war ii like i know people are going to say yes we had rationing and you know people fought and died in the war but as far as like day-to-day life not it sad. wasn't like it was in europe no so we, we were kind of out of touch with that whereas they were really more in even these guys who were technically i guess they were born in the 60s right kind of 50s early 60s they know they did not live through it but it was a constant reminder in their lives so to go to berlin and see this stuff and kind of revisit that was a little i think it had a lot more meaning for them
0: i think you're right and the the guys who are generation older than them certainly the, the beatles stones into the, the Black Sabbath Genesis generation, those kind of people. They all talk about growing up in London or in their towns in the Midlands or wherever and there's rubble everywhere. You know, it's it's it didn't just get fixed up in 1946. You know, it took decades to kind of clean everything up and get life back to some kind of normality. And life was very much black and white until maybe the Beatles came along or even the mm-hmm. late 60s, which eventually became the uh technicolor, if you will.
2: Yeah, there's a story Joe Elliott was talking about being a <laughs> Kid in school and remembering, they were on the walls. There were just screws coming out of the walls because they had taken all the railings off to make something out of the metal. Right. So they they really, yeah, it was really still. It was they still had reminders all over the place.
0: And they they may not have lived through World War II, but living in Ireland. What they refer to as the troubles here, where there's bombs going off and clashes with the IRA and the and the English army, so they knew something about that. They they did live mm-hmm. through some of that. So having something with a little bit of violence going to someplace like that probably made some sense for them. And to start it off, we're not just the old punk band grown up now. We're moving on to something completely different, not dissimilar to what REM was starting to become from the kind of small garage church in a small town band to becoming really international global pop superstars and this just kind of set it
2: off yeah it, it was a good statement piece yeah like you said when we first heard it you you were definitely in for something different now and I, and the other thing was too back then you really didn't know what this was going to be because they didn't you didn't have the internet you didn't have any kind of all the they had MTV stuff and you could kind of, I mean, I guess if you had Rolling Stone, you could read about that, but that was about it. So you didn't really know what you were getting yourself into until you got a copy of this and listened to it.
0: And then you follow that up with even better than the real thing. Again, this is, it sounds like Edge is stomping on some pedals or clicking on some mm-hmm. pedals here, you know, it, it, which is really kind of his reputation. He really does experiment quite a bit with these effects and pedals and mixing them together and sending one backwards, maybe, or something like that. But it's cool. It's still cool, and, it, and it's and it got some ambiance to it. And it's, uh, obviously, it was a single, but all three producers worked on this one. Like, some are attributed to Lanois, some... Or Len Wein, you Eno, know, and some Lily White is in on, and this is one that all three of them had a hand in making.
2: This was the record that I gave the edge the credit that I think he deserves. I always thought he was kinda of like, eh, because the, the when you listen to the stuff before this, it didn't sound like it was all that complicated. He wasn't the he wasn't the the Angus Young, you know, guitar riff guy. But yeah, he's kind of like you were talking about before, he's like the the mad scientist. He's got this giant pedal board that he plays. You, you're right. He does a lot with effects. He sings a lot of the background. He really does vocals that I I really didn't in my mind give him credit for before. So he's not the traditional rock and roll guitar hero, but he definitely carved out his own niche of being a, a, an integral it, part of the band. But also like it, more understated. He's doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes that you can't you don't really realize right off the bat. But he puts it all together to make the sound of you two.
0: And his solos are maybe—I mean, something like "Sunday Bloody Sunday" might stand out, but usually it's—it's it's kind of an interlude, a little bit like Peter Buck from REM. It's like mm-hmm. it's intricate, it fits it, and even on even better than the real thing. It's it, this is more like something that's stretched out. It's not like a super focused "Listen to Me" noodle on the guitar. It's like listen to the tones and the sounds that I get in and out of this guitar. And then how we come right back into the song afterwards, you know. Take me higher. Take me higher. And he's he's jamming on it there. It's it's classic Edge. It's good you 2 It just sounds different than stuff they've done before.
2: Yeah, and, and so now we're starting to get into the, you know, what do you mean even better than the real thing? Mm-hmm. And, and I think here's where... You 2 a lot, they don't get a lot of the credit that they deserve for having lyrics that make you think. Are you just looking for instant gratification now, or have we gotten to this just total consumer disposal world of, eh, I don't really like that, you know, let's move on to the next thing. What's the next thing that's shiny and can hold my attention for two seconds?
0: Yeah, Bono's voice is a great instrument. It's a great tool that you don't really have to understand every word he's saying. And certainly the first few times you listen to a song, you can't. You can't understand every word. It takes a while before you can hear it all out and then start to make sense of it. That's always been kind of my thing with, certainly you too, but a lot of bands is, I don't need you to necessarily completely explain exactly what you you're saying use the tone of your voice and i'll get it obviously i'll chime in on the choruses because they're easy to understand or whatever but i think he has an amazing he does an amazing job of using his voice and tone to create the mood and deliver the message well he might just be saying blah 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 I understand what he's trying to convey based on how he's saying it. But then, yes, if you go back and look at these lyrics, it's a little subliminal. He is trying to educate you, get you to think on some stuff, or get you to feel. This was more of an emotional album for me versus you two being political. This is more about, instead of looking at what's going on at the outside world... What's going on inside of me is the way I kind of mm-hmm. look at it.
2: yeah, I, I think that you're right and and we'll get into this a little bit later on at the tracks of what was going on in the band members' lives, but yeah, it was going get it was gonna get messy here before we get through the end of this record. but the the beginning of this, I was reading that they they thought it was like Stones feel to it. I kind of got more of the Beatles at the beginning, Mm kind of like the you know Magical Mystery Tour feeling. Not that it sounded like that, but it kind of sounded in the same vein, just for a second, and then they go
0: more experimental. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And then the third song one is, look, it's it's almost like in every breath you take, it's not just about happiness. It sounds like a sweet song, so everybody likes it. But I don't know uh, if all the lyrics are about just being in love, right? I mean, it's it's an amazing song. It's a very moody song. Three different, four different videos, maybe. Everyone likes it. Old people, young people, girls, boys, rockers, balladeers. This is the one that kind of brings it all together, and it's the one that saved the band.
2: Yes, you're correct on all of those points. My thing is I never really liked this song. I thought is it was right? I thought it was overplayed. I thought it was I, I have a problem with with songs that everybody likes. Okay.
0: I understand cool. that.
2: But when you listen to the lyrics of what he's saying, it's pretty heavy duty. Yes. And this this song, I, I give this song a lot more credit now that I can go back and listen to it. And maybe even as an older person, you know, when you're, you know, 18, 19 years old, you know everything thing. Right. You know, whatever. What I don't care about this. I'm just, you know, I'm living for the moment. It, will it make it easier on you now that you've got someone to blame? All right. But you act like you never had love and you want me to go without. Like, yep. yeah, it's just, oh man. Not saying I've been there before, but yeah, I've been there before. <laughs> Everyone just, has, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just, like I said, once you get a little bit older, you got a few more miles down the road, it definitely resonates more of the, if you're in love, not even with a person, I'm sorry, not even with a with a person that you're like romantically in love with, but somebody who you've had a relationship with that's mm-hmm. not easy at certain parts, and it's just like I thought this was supposed to be a lot more smooth than it has been and it's just the ups and downs of of being in relationships, I think with and, people
0: and speaking of smooth man, I think Adam Clayton is so smooth on this song. He kind of jumps out on me on these first few songs, and he's got that kind of driving thing and even better than the real thing, but it's it's very cool the kind of rhythm that he's got going on. And because Edge isn't jamming on chords and he's not doing a lot of fiddly bits in this, he's using a lot more tone and sustain to kind of hold these notes. So what you're really hearing, mostly to me, is Adam Clayton's bass. And in that movie, at the end, they kind of show him back in Hansa playing the bass part and he's just staring right into the camera and the camera's moving away from him and he's staring right into it like this is what it is mm, 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 mm. just focusing on you like you see what I'm doing here this is what the song is about and it was really kind of a really cool rock star thing I was like damn man that's that's
2: actually really awesome you were talking before about this uh, having kind of an REM feel and, and I think you two you can you uh, can Draw some comparisons to just the way that they're set up, mm-hmm. and yeah, it, because the edge is doing his own thing, like Mike Mills in REM, Clayton has to set the foundation. And maybe, maybe you don't hear it at the beginning because you're, you know, you're thinking about the lyrics or you're thinking about the guitar work. But yeah, if you focus on that, yeah, he is rock solid down there. Mm. The single,
0: yeah, it, it, it probably sold over a million cop a couple million copies worldwide is what I'm seeing there. So yeah, that's that's always impressive when you get a single to do that. Beautiful beautiful song some of the lyrics are heavy it's like i said it's like every breath you take at first listening like oh that's a pretty song if you really listen to what it's saying it's like "Mm, okay it's a little it's a little rougher than that but that's what love is sometimes correct hey guys this is ryan condell the executive producer writer creator of house of the dragon and you're listening to the ugly american
2: werewolf in london podcast and you should download and subscribe keep doing that All right, let's move on. Right
0: until the end of the world. Yes, sir. What do you? What's your impressions on this one?
2: This this we make a kind of a hard left turn here. This is a little darker, a little heavier. Even though, like we were saying, one may not be the cheeriest, happiest song. The melody is great in it. Not so much on this one. We this this one is this one's a little nasty. And yeah. this one could be about the Bono edge parting, not parting of ways, but disagreements. You know. You You've been a partner with this guy since I think like the late 60s, early 70s. They've been together, at least knowing each other. Maybe that's maybe a move the timetable back a little bit yeah they've been together for anyway now. yeah yeah they've been together for a while now and, and and now are you trying to are things starting to come apart
0: and but the edge is is kicking it on this one some of his rock and rhythm guitar it's kind of got that edge chug that, that we're kind of yeah. used to yeah that's that's classic edge like i said he doesn't have one big back breaking chord that rings he goes up and down together on the and it has a rhythm to what he's doing that's very edge-like. And it comes out here until the end of the world here. I think very well. I, again, it, it, they're starting to create a total sound of this album now through these first four. And this fits in very well.
2: Yeah, it's it's a nice change of pace, too. Because you, you didn't want... I mean, one kind of slows it down. You got the lighters out for that. And then, you know, here we go. Now, now the... That was like the level out, and now we're going to drop on the roller coaster again. And you're right; that beginning part is pretty cool. And then once he gets done with the with the intro, the the bass and the drums come in underneath really well and kind of and set the groove of the song,
0: as they so often do. Yeah, a yeah. great rhythm section, Larry Mullen Jr. and, and Adam Clayton, and you go right into "Who's Going to w- Ride Your Wild Horses." obviously when you hear Wild Horses you automatically think of the Stones this is still kind of an upbeat song even though I, the lyrics don't necessarily mean that it was a little little ring to it on Edge's guitar but again I, I, I like this one it was a good single could have been on a different U2 album this, this is one that's like more recognizable if you if you heard all 12 songs individually you'd say yep that's a U2 song yeah and I I don't, I don't really like this song I don't like <laughs> you like any of
2: the big hits do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, well, the thing, the problem with this one is, and and I was reading about this. This to me sounds like a song where the record company was like, "Oh, boys, I don't hear a single. I don't hear a single, and I am nervous. This doesn't sound like anything you've done before. We need something to play on the radio, and this was what they. This is what they came up with. Now, Bono was saying that apparently there was a whole other set of lyrics for this song, and they kind of changed it up at the last minute." And, and I think that's, that may be the, the problem with this one is it doesn't sound to me like it belongs on this record. It sounds like they kind of they kind of made it fit.
0: Well, that's interesting take. And from what I understand, getting the song together, getting its melody and its direction together is the most important thing. Even if you can find the tone of the vocals, you might not have the lyrics together at the end. And if Bono keeps all the lyrics iffy, let's just say, until the very last minute then it gives you license to go in a lot of different directions. and also gives you the ability to kind of put a big theme that connects some of the songs on the album, if that's what you want to do. Instead of coming in with finished poems or finished songs, Mm -hmm. give yourself a little leeway to see what kind of story would fit what the song has evolved into. And, And that could be part of it there. But obviously they had... Pretty good success with who's going to run ride your wild horses, you know.
2: Yeah, it was very it was very radio friendly. It was a lot more radio friendly than the fly, even though I like that song way better. But yeah, it, to me that always felt like it just didn't really belong with the rest of this.
0: Fair enough. Now we get into some of the songs we don't know quite as well. Some of the ones that maybe weren't on the radio so much. With "So Cruel," obviously, a song like "So Cruel" is uh, well, obviously, you know, you're not uh, you're not being happy, shiny, happy people like the R.E.M.'s on this one. This is getting a little personal here, but it's still an awfully good song, awfully good melody and all.
2: I never really heard this song before. Well, not that I hadn't heard it before. I hadn't heard it in a long time. And here's where we start to get a little nasty. Here's mm-hmm. where the, you know, like you ever have a conversation with somebody and you ask them how they are and they say everything's going great blah, blah, blah. And then you talk for a while and then all of a sudden they kind of burn through that and they tell you how they're really feeling. Mm-hmm. This is this song. The Edge was going through a super I don't know if it was nasty like I don't know what all the details were but it was a very heavy duty deal for him he had been you know this is the mother of his children right. he' had been with her for a long time and what I didn't realize too is at this point in time where I didn't think about it at this point in time if you've been with these guys for 20 plus years like this is kind of your wife too right you know you're but like, you know her you know this whole thing and this is ending and yeah this song is disgusting. When you listen to it, it's about how do you know when love is over and how do you really, you know, how do you move on? And, you know, at one one minute you want to go running back and the next minute it's just cutting you to the bone. Ew. Yeah. And how do you, I guess the other thing too is if you're in that situation, if you're not the edge. How do you, you know, this is your buddy and, you know, I'm here to help you, but you're kind of going through this by yourself too in the middle of trying to record this record.
0: Right. In different places. Yeah. And well, the thing is they were in Berlin, like you said, They, they did a lot of work there. And then after Christmas, they came back to Ireland and they got, they rented a place that was within walking distance from the edges house and maybe Bono's house too. So that worked better as far as you could have some home life. You could be in comfortable surroundings. You come in and get work done. And then you could go off and and not be in some strange place. And I I think it it ended up working out. But you're right. The lyrics on this are getting a little heavier here. Yeah. Exactly what they're doing. (laughs) Please check out
2: this word from our sponsors. Oh, wait. We don't have any sponsors. (laughs)
0: The fly, now we're starting to see the change in the persona. First we heard the change in the sound, now we're starting to see the change in the persona. So Bono had to have a little bit of fun with himself realizing, okay maybe I came off as a bit of a pompous, spoiled, jerk a little bit in the last one. What if I really was Mr. Macho Super Duper Rockstar? Well, then I'll put these big fat glasses on, and now I'm the fly. And now I have this crazy, you know, wearing all dressed in black leather head to toe. And it actually changed a little bit, I think, later in the tour. He was the fly. In the first part of the tour, and then later he became Mephisto, where he was, uh, he had like the devil horns on and a gold jacket, and he had, I think, a little pillow or something there to make him look like, now I'm the fat old Elvis kind of rock star, you know, I'm not the hot young, check me out, all black, fly glasses, coolest thing on earth. Now I'm the, yeah, I'm getting older, but I still get paid to do this, so come check it out. And the, and the song is great, The Fly. It's interesting that it's the first single to me, but it kind of comes out and grabs you, right?
2: It does. I liked it. I know it, it kind of got maligned when it came out, but I liked it. I, it was a different deal. And going back to the whole thing of the persona of The Fly, it just shows you how, and we can talk about this forever, and have, and will again, that, kiss is the greatest rock and roll band ever because they created these characters Mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not gene simmons i'm the demon when i go on stage and so i think this fly deal kind of it was a little like pressure valve release that you could go out and be this other person on stage and just kind of have fun with it Instead of saying, you know, oh well, I have to be the same person. It was more separation, and I think that freed him up. And I think it was also kind of tongue in cheek too about how, yes, you know, this is me. I'm the I'm the rock star. Everybody thinks thinks I think I am
0: exactly. You know, it's like show a little sense of humor, yeah. a little self deprecation. It is serious business, but we're having some fun with it here, folks. You know, right. And and the song did really well on the charts. I mean, it, it didn't do well in America, but around the world, the fly was very popular. And some of it's probably just like, oh, we finally got something from you too. What is it Give me it? I'll buy it the first day. But it's it was popular, and they obviously played it on the tour.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and it doesn't. I, I liked it because it was a little harder, and it the guitar work in it is a little is a little more raw than you're used to. And I like that. I think that's him singing that higher part, too. Because I went back and looked, and I don't see anybody else credited with vocals outside the band. So you've kind of got the, you've got him singing the low part, and then that high part on top of it is kind of a nice change of pace. This is Neil from Daft Lab Pod, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London rock podcast.
0: Mysterious Ways was a really big hit. Uh, again, heavy on the bass at the beginning, and then it's got some odd... Edge stuff in there boom boom boom. It's it's cool and it's got Bono kind of going a little high, a little soft first, and then getting into his bottomness there. Big hit for him, a fun one live. I mean, still one that she moves in mysterious ways that seems to resonate thirty years later.
2: I don't know if I can have a relationship with this song.
0: You're just trashing this whole right. You don't like I, half of this album.
2: <laughs> I, no, no, no. I I love this. I love this song. I love the bass on the song. Boom 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 boom, but listening to this song, I was back in the freshman dorm. Mm-hmm. Like it just brought back this wave of oh my god! I can't. I, I like memories I hadn't accessed in so long. This was such a huge part of that year, more than even more than like the Black album. I mean, I guess maybe because I listened to that a lot more on its own. Sure, and I later. didn't on this one, but yeah, it was just like. Wow, I haven't been there in a long time. This there were great memories that I hadn't accessed for years and years and years. But yeah, this is a great song, and I thought this was the big one. I thought this was bigger than one to me on this record. I, I've got I like I liked it better than. It's a little more funky.
0: It's definitely
2: that. And yeah, it's no, I, you knew I was going to, you thought I was going to trash it. No, I love this song. It was just, I didn't realize how I linked it back to that until I started listening to it again on heavy rotation here.
0: Yeah. It's amazing how hearing a song can take you back to a certain point in time. And the emotions that that can stir up that you weren't expecting or you weren't really thinking a whole lot about. So all of a sudden you give it a listen, like, oh God, I remember going out <laughs> on Saturday night with Jackson. You know, we got beers, like, all right, great. Yeah, yeah, you know, let's go to the party. Yes, yeah, girls there, sure. Yeah, all right, let's go. Know, let's just go upstairs see what the girls are doing up there. Yeah, that's cool. Let's do that instead. <laughs> Whatever. Fun, fun times. I think though they had a belly dancer on tour that would come out and right. dance during mysterious ways. And then that was the edges next. I don't know if she was his wife, but I think they had a kid together. I think they got really serious. I I, I could probably look that up, uh, but I'm not, you know, I'm not into the tabloid side of them. I just kind of yeah. want, want to know, you know how the, how the music's made and all that kind of stuff. But so then, yeah, mysterious ways. There's gotta be a good one for, for the edge. He's got to remember this one fondly. <laughs>
2: You've got some bad memories from this record and some good ones. That's right.
0: And trying to throw your arms around the world. Now, this is a soft kind of spare song. Going to run to you, run to you, run to you. It's somebody looking for something, looking for love, looking for something to hold on to. Again, good work from Adam Clayton as far as I'm concerned. But after you do The Fly and Mysterious Ways, I think you naturally need a little bit of a break, a little bit of a, all right, let's pull back a little bit. And here it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a song about, I think it's a song about kind of just being maybe a little bit intoxicated. Mm-hmm. You know, six o'clock in the morning, like you just have that like silly, like, yeah, you know, I, I like when they go, try to throw your arms around the world, try to throw your arms around the world. And then the third time it's try to throw your arms around the girl. Like mm-hmm. that's what you're, I mean, especially, you know, where we were when this, record came out that's all you're really looking for It's just to be silly and you know find somebody to spend time with right N- nothing really heavy duty just kind of like that happy just silliness
0: yes happy silliness it's what it used to all be about man.
2: <laughs> happy silliness <laughs> a couple
0: of classes during the day maybe a little pool time and then happy silliness
2: mm-hmm.
0: talking to your Ace Fraley poster in the middle of the night <laughs> so now I, I feel like look at this point, you're starting to get to the point where in the CD, in the LP tape days, you're kind of getting to the end. You usually only have 9 or 10 songs, something like that, on the album. So when you get to number 10... Ultraviolet, my way. You're starting to think, all right, this is going to be the end of the record. But there's three more songs left because CDs you can put more songs on, and this is more than 55 minutes. Whereas most YouTubes are in the 40s, you know, for up to this mm-hmm. point, I think some were even under 40. We talk about 44 and 47 minutes, the kind of traditional LP cassette times. Now this is a little longer, and so you might get some quote-unquote throwaways here, but not necessarily. And Ultraviolet never would have known that was the name of the song. Because in parentheses that it's Light My Way, Baby, 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 Light My Way is the chorus. And I remember hearing this at the end of the album, thinking, this is very moody, kind of classic U2 again. It's not quite as affected as some of the other songs. And it's not a good rocking song, but I I liked
2: it. Yeah, and and it's got that kind of familiar U2 riff at the beginning of it. I really kind of thought this might have been a single. I remember hearing it a lot, That you know, that Baby, 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 Light Mm -hmm. My Way. I mean, again, yeah, he does say ultraviolet, but not that you would pick up on. Right. uh, Not in the chorus part. Uh, It's a little, you know, we're going back to needing to find salvation and what's, what's going on here as far as like relationships and love and... Yeah, not even though this is number 10, it, it's a good song. And I enjoyed listening to it again and kind of re reintroducing myself to the song.
0: That's right. And there's always going to be one, maybe two, if we haven't listened to this in so long, that we all we'll have forgotten about. And it'll right. be like a surprise. Like, oh, man, I forgot about this. or I remember that part. Yeah, this is actually better than I remember. But to me, the 11th song, Acrobat, never could have named it in a thousand years, could have never come up with the name <laughs> of the song I. Th- Think this might be the best song on the album. It's certainly the best song that wasn't a single. It's it's the one that, as far as songs off this album that not everybody knows. To me, this might be the best song they do on. It.
2: This is a little not a little. This is a lot more. This is nasty. This is a nasty song. There was something about this that I never really. I couldn't put my finger on it. I'm not a music historian. I'm not a musical person. Really. But apparently, it's in twelve-eight time. It's it's off a tick, mm-hmm. so it doesn't. It sounds very unique right off the bat. Even though, like I said, I couldn't I couldn't hear. Oh, that's obviously twelve-eight time.
0: Yeah, I never would have picked that. Or, up.
2: I don't know that, but I know something's different about it. Yeah, it's uh, you know, they've got some again, what are we what are we talking about here? Are we talking about religion? Are we talking about government? Are we talking about love, interests or loving relationships that you were in? I don't know, but it's it's the whole you can spit it or swallow it, spit it out or swallow it. Oh boy, what, yeah. what's going on
0: here? And does contentment need to come from within? Uh, does it need to come from without? Are you what you do? Or are you who you are? And it's not just a soft song like the previous. It's got a little rock to it, too. Yeah, I, I think this is a great one for them to break out once in a while. Because this is, as far as this, because obviously this is a very important album for them. It's sold very well. Lots of hit singles always help that. So if this is one of their most important albums ever, and maybe their very best, I think this is the uncut gem. This is the one more people should know than do, as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah, I think that you're saying this is their their most important record. I think a lot of people would point to the Joshua Tree, but I think this is this has got more things going on, and I think this is a more mature record. Mm-hmm. I think the Joshua Tree was more like you know we're we're gonna stand for something and we're gonna live you know live the American dream and wander around in the desert. And this is kind of when the car hits the wall and you say, Oh, now I see before I was a child and kind of had this wide eyed optimism. And this is now I got cut pretty deep and relationships falling apart, either professional relationships or personal relationships. And then I think, you know, this, this acrobat song too, there was stuff about religion also Mm -hmm. and about how I always thought all the guys were Irish they're not. I think Clayton and Mullen, no, two, maybe The Edge, I don't know, I can't remember now. Two of them are English born, you know, but they were, they. Yeah, I know Clayton
0: in was born, in, I, he's English born, but then he also went to English schools mm-hmm. like in Africa or something like that. He had grown up there. And then okay. when he went to Ireland, I think he went to an English school as well, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, ended up in Ireland, but isn't necessarily what some people would consider pure Irish.
2: We, yeah which i'm sure probably didn't go well for him when he was a kid right you know you have the whole thing protestant versus catholic and mm-hmm. you know the whole the whole i like that whole thing of don't let the bastards grind you down yeah. you know just like that and and i think that that's something that we we also have no reference to in the united states this whole deal about how if you live in ireland there's two different countries right what and you know growing up with the the religious differences the ruling differences the ira doing you know crazy things you didn't know what was happening yeah. i think a lot of that came out and the, there were undertones of that in this song
0: well I, I think the song's amazing so i'm yeah this is the one that i am happy to have refound from our adventure here because i knew half of it was going to be like i don't even know if i need to listen to this because it, it's just it's in there so or i only need to listen once but this is the one where I was just happy to find it again.
2: Absolutely. And, well and you ever listen to Adam Carolla? Try not to. You know uh, okay. So <laughs> but his his whole thing was I'm gonna I'm gonna listen I'm gonna tell you every U two song. Hold on bucka 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 okay you've heard every U2 song now and I don't think that that's true Look, going back and listening to this record start to finish there's a lot of stuff going on on this it's a lot layered there's a lot more texture they're a lot better than people like that who dismiss them this is this is a good record this is a lot more mature than I gave it credit for at the
0: beginning yeah no and it's not just the the different soundscapes and effects and tools they're using to create different music but it's what are they really talking about what are they really getting into. It's very mm-hmm. personal and emotional looking inside versus just looking, look at all the problems in the world we could fix. It's like, well, what am I feeling? What's going on inside of me? What, what do I need to get on top of? And if you're edge and you're going through a nasty divorce, which means the whole band has to make some changes to this relationship they've had for 20 years or whatever it's been with this person. Yeah, that, that's tough for everybody. You're in a place like Berlin that's, yeah, it's going through something amazing, but it's also still stuck. It didn't go technically color the next day it's taken a while here so different different song but i would list it as my number one favorite all of a sudden off this album put put one yeah. at number two
2: this I, i'm really when you when you said this or when you d- suggested this topic i was like yeah okay you know whatever we can go back and do it if you want I'm really glad that you did, because listening to, especially the songs that were not the singles, mm-hmm. th- this is a really good record. Yeah, it is. Wow. wow. And I never gave it the credit that it deserves, because I think when I heard it originally, I was too young to really get what they were talking about.
0: Yeah, I. me too. Same, right? I mean, I, I like to think, well, I could have understood that. Like, yeah. At that time in my life I didn't want to hear all that. Right. I didn't I hadn't been in enough relationships to understand a lot of the stuff that I can imagine it, but I didn't have firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they have, and that's what they're talking about here. I love his blindness the way they wrap it up. Again, it's <laughs> this is not shiny happy people. This is, you know, this is a little bit of tough stuff here. Maybe one they could have left off given that there are so many B-sides, there's so many different pieces uh, that they could have tried instead i'm not against the song it's not that i don't like it it's just when you've got a whole nother album of and some of them are remixes so you wouldn't just do a Necessarily, you wouldn't put a remix at the end of the album, but yeah, it's it's a little different, but uh, but it fits, and it's it's a good way to kind of wrap it up, I suppose.
2: And this was always going to be a tough deal too, because like you were saying before, it it, this is a longer record than you're used to—12 tracks, 55 minutes and 27 seconds. You're kind of you're kind of worn out here by the end of this, and so this last one, it's a good way to end it because it's it's kind of it's haunting and it's kind of powerful and in reading about it i guess the the edge really kind of just put all of his frustrations and bad feelings into the into playing this. And I guess he was like, when they were actually recording it, he was breaking strings off. He was just digging in so hard. He just kept going. You know, he was just kind of leaving it all out there on this one.
0: Well, good for them. I mean, you know, they have sacrificed for their art. They try to make artistic statements, and they hit it big. And even with the cover, you know, having the different photographs, maybe of the traveling car, or maybe the, the U2 ring, or there's Bono maybe with some odd face makeup on us or whatever it might be. It's not just a landscape. It's not the band. It's it's an amalgamation of different things. And that's a great thing when you take all these different ingredients, mix them up, and then make something special out of it. That's the alchemy that makes a great record. And that's what they got out of it. I mean, they're doing it in different countries. They're using different producers. They're using all sorts of different effects. They're talking about things that they have not before mix we've got heavy-duty emotional stuff going on outside of the band in your personal lives mix all that together and see what comes out they did an amazing job of pulling this out of themselves and creating something timeless and special
2: yeah and i didn't realize the the hoops that they had to jump through to get this thing done not that i had a thought one way or the other on it but i would have thought at this point in time this was what their seventh record they would have had the recording and writing kind of down to a science and it didn't sound like they did at all. They just kind of went in almost searching for something new and, and came up with this and and that probably worked out the best. I mean, we talked earlier about one coming out of just a jam session, Mm-hmm. You got something that was a lot more organic than a package deal, and I think that that worked out well for them. It just, it, and like I said, I never gave this record enough credit. I never for the complexity of it. So I'm really glad that we we got to revisit this thing and, and put more time into listening to it.
0: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And and then the tour, the Zoo TV tour, was colossal. Right, they had this amazing huge stage, and they had some of those Trabant Trabant cars on stage that moved and stuff and had lights on it and things like that. In Norm's, I didn't really see the show. I kind of did. As I said, I worked security there. A bunch of my fraternity brothers and I did as a fundraiser. So they didn't pay us for it or all the money we raised, you know, went to a charity or whatever. And so at first, because I was kind of a skinny young guy, I was like, I need a couple guys for this one thing. It's so like, all right, I was up front and, and I went with him down to, the, down to the concourse. Like, all right, we need to keep you, you guys need to keep this door safe. Domino's Pizza is going to bring pizzas in and out of this door. I'm like, oh, shit, man, I'm not even in, you know, the show. And what was cool is they had Public Enemy and Big Audio Dynamite open for them. Big Audio Dynamite wow. was kind of the Mick Jones of The Clash. Yeah. He's kind of reggae, you know, fusion band. So during the show, during that part of it, I just worked and I just stood at the thing there and let them in and kept people who weren't supposed to come in, kept them out and all that kind of stuff. And then for a while, the guy who I was doing it with is like, hey, man, here's a song I like. You mind if I run and see it real fast? I say, OK, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And then I'm like, hey, man, I, I think I, I want to go see this song. He's like, oh, yeah, sure, man. Go ahead. But I just didn't come back. I, I ran up to the concourse and I had you know one of the big openings there you know, where you, everybody walks out from the concourse and then to walk their seats. So I just walked out there and sat there and watched, you know. And then eventually, because I had the security shirt on, one of the security guys said, can you make sure you just keep this area clear? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, man, no problem. So if people would come up and they would want to watch for a few seconds before they went to their seat, i let them do that. I'm like, I'm sorry, I need to keep this clear. Can you go ahead and do that? You know, so, uh, so that was my show. So then I got to see most all of the show doing that. One of my buddies just kind of abandoned his post went down into like the 15th row or something where he saw an empty seat, took off his security shirt and was like, yeah, you too. And then as soon as the show was over, he put his security shirt back on. I was like, all right, everybody, I need you to clear on out of here, please. You know. But what was interesting was they really started off heavy with the new album. The first six songs, and I don't know if it was like this for the entire tour, but the first six songs were from... The new record, Zoo Station, Fly, Better Than the Real Thing, Mysterious Ways, One, with a little bit of uh, you know a little bit of a medley with some My Girl and some other stuff, and then until the end of the world, which is cool. I didn't see too much of that. I think I saw one, but I didn't see too much of those. Then they went into New Year's Day. I'm like, oh no, that's, I got to go see this one, and that's when I didn't come back after that. <laughs> I didn't realize that they did Whiskey in the Jar because I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know the Fin Lizzie version, and the Metallica one wouldn't come out for. Uh, a decade later or something like that. Yeah. So I, I didn't know it, but Larry Mullen sang that one. And then they did "Trying to Throw Your Arms Around the World. And then that was it as far as the new record goes. And then they went into their hits from there, including they had a kind of a B stage thing that they went to and did some acoustic stuff and then came back to the main and had a three song encore but it was it was cool it was it was like cuz we, we did our show on steel wheels number 16 uh, the stones not only the record but the fact that we got to see them in concert And that was our first kind of big show that we'd ever seen but this was the next one and it was kind of overload with all the lights and the cars and the TVs and all the stuff that they had on stage cuz you two starting to realize, all right, we're not in the best place to see us, so you have to create something that is really special, that is visually interesting, and makes sense around the songs we're doing and stuff like that. So I was impressed, and I'm glad that I eventually got to see you two in other venues uh, on a few other tours after that. Uh, but that was my first introduction to you two live was. Being a half-ass security guard at the Big Sombrero in Tampa in 1992, October 10th, I believe it was 1992.
2: Yeah, and and I think that was the we mentioned at the beginning. They they started the tour off a lot smaller, uh, smaller venues, smaller you know, smaller set lists. So by the time that you went and saw them, that was pretty far into the tour. That, that was in the full blown, right. new stuff, old stuff. You definitely got to see a better show than the, uh, the poor people at yeah. show number one. But they got to
0: see something special.
2: So have Correct. you
0: have you seen YouTube since
2: then? I, I have not, no. And and I know that that was, that was shame on me for not doing that. Unfortunately, I was in a part of my life, especially in the early 2000s when I had moved to Texas And I really didn't have anybody to go to concerts with. I mean, I I knew people that were, I had friends who were into music, but like not really that into music. And Mm -hmm. San Antonio is kind of a place where a lot of big tours don't go through. right? Because, you know, you've got Dallas, you've got Houston, and then Austin was starting to get big at that point in time. So yeah. And then, you know, I just got married and I had a kid. And so that was kind of like my not going through tours time, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely missed out on that because it, it is a great show, and they're just a great band to see. I've seen concert footage of them, mm-hmm. and they look fantastic.
0: For sure, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to see them at Soldier Field, Chicago, on the 360 tour. I, I mentioned on the Joshua Tree tour, I saw them in Papa John's Cardinal Stadium in Louisville when they did that in its entirety. I also got to see Bono saunter out to its only rock and roll when I saw the Stones in the Aragon Ballroom, when they did that kind of...
2: <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah,
0: theater, arena, stadium tour, where in some towns they would do all three of those. Aragon was, I don't know, it seemed like it was only maybe 1,200, but it's probably a couple thousand people. And, yeah, he kind of saunters out. And the thing is, I wish he kind of saved that Mephisto costume because he was put on a few pounds there. He had his waistcoat (laughs) tied pretty closely together. But, yeah, they do it's only rock and roll. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a good one. And then who just kind of appears from the side of the stage is Bono himself, man. And so I thats I, I chalk that up as, you know, the fourth time I guess I've encountered Bono live.
2: Nice, nice. Yeah, the, I, I do love those Stones deals where they bring out somebody big you know, a couple of times when they're in big places like New York or L.A. or Miami or something, they'll usually have somebody add, please welcome to the stage, Eric Clapton. Like, oh, okay, well, I didn't know he was hanging around, but cool. Great,
1: right. yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank <laughs> you. It's hard to believe it's been 30 years since Jackson and I met as freshmen in college in fall of 1991, and it's equally hard to believe that U2's Octung Baby was released 30 years ago. It had such a huge impression on us, and really I think all the kids of our generation there, maybe they'd be a little bit younger or a little bit older. This U2 record, Octung Baby, really hit home with a lot of people. It had a lot of great new sounds. It had a lot of great songs that would become classics and instant hits. And it really just kind of felt like the right album at the right time. U2 has maybe gone down just a step on Rattle and Hum in some people's eyes. That album was part soundtrack, part new songs, part live stuff. And it had been just a little while since we'd seen them. And some things had changed. There had been some shifts. And we were just ready for it. And they delivered in a big way. Soaking in a little bit of what had been happening In Berlin with the fall of the Berlin Wall and changing over, going through some very personal and hard stuff in their lives and their relationships, working with a lot of different people in some different places, experimenting and coming up with a truly remarkable album that not only stands the test of time but may be their very finest ever. Maybe not the biggest, the one that launched them the furthest. By the time they got to this they were already super-duper stars. But this just showed they can hold on to that mantle, and then they can carry it forward. The band darn near broke up. They almost disintegrated in Berlin. But thanks to finding one song in a bridge of another song, finding one in the middle of mysterious ways, which would also be a great song and a big hit for them, really changed the tide. And I think it's the reason they continue to go on to this day, because they figured out in tough circumstances, in the band, outside the band, in the world, We can still make this work, we can still work together and come up with not only something great, but something that redefines us and that's something they continue to do over and over, they've done it over and over for the last 30 years, and hopefully they've still got some more stuff in them, that's for sure. Now, we appreciate you listening to this episode, and obviously, if you like this, we want you to hear more. You can check out all past episodes at www.UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn.com, and you can get our podcast anywhere you get your podcast be it Spotify, Apple, Good GoodPods, PodChaser, Google, Amazon, anywhere you get them. We only ask that if you do like it, hey, go on that spot and give us a nice review. It just helps us find more rock and roll fans like you. Helps grow the audience. It can help us get more fun stuff going on the show here later. Of course, we want you to reach out to us on Twitter at Ugly underscore Werewolf and at ActionJack72. Let us know the albums, the bands, the songs, the concerts, the movies the rock and roll properties you want us to review. Now next week, we are also going into what could be an emotional place. When we look at REM's document, you heard us refer to REM a few times throughout this podcast. And I just draw some parallel lines between R.E.M. in the late 80s and U2. They were bands that were kind of earnest, came from small, humble beginnings, got to be really big, but they were kind of underground bands that became super mainstream. And they share some styles, they share some states of mind, they share a lot of talent and some really big hits, obviously both of them. And we bring in a friend of mine, Tom, who has a personal side to this album as well. Obviously, music can affect you emotionally, and sometimes when you go back and listen to things that were big at a certain period in your life, it brings back those memories, it brings back those feelings, those emotions, and a way only music really can, in my opinion. And I think you'll really like this one coming up next week. That'll be UA Will 54. So until next time, rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe.